when we're talking about human rights in the 21st century, we're talking about questions of whether our democracy is becoming algocracy or rule by algorithm. We're talking about questions of whether or not a social media company may have engineered and amplified a genocide in Myanmar. We are talking about questions of free speech on online platforms. All of those are human rights issues, and tech is right at the center of it. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. My guest today might have the distinction of being the only person in the world who holds the job that she holds. Dr. Deb Donig is a literature professor at Cal Poly, whose area of focus is the intersection of technology and human rights. She's also the host of the Technically Human podcast that asks questions about ethics and technology, and as she likes to put it, what it means to be human in the age of tech. Before It Happened is a show about visionaries and the inspiration that pushed them to change the world. But Deb takes a very different approach to analyzing technology and how it shapes our future. She looks at it through a prism of ethics, human behavior, and ultimately human rights. And she looks at the evolution of the idea that spurs great advances in technology. Think social media or smartphones. Then she thinks about the unintended consequences that perhaps could have been avoided had the developers thought more critically and ethically about how users might interact with that technology. This was a thought-provoking conversation that anyone with an interest in future technology should hear. Deb Donink was born and raised right in the heart of Silicon Valley. Her mother came to the U.S. from South Africa and still works as a pediatric ICU doctor. Her father is a lawyer whose family immigrated from Germany to the U.S. during Hitler's rise to power in the 1930s. More precisely, 1938, which is a really good time to leave Germany, which is where they were from if you were German Jewish. So we spent a lot of time in Europe. We also spent some time in the Middle East and a lot of time traveling to see family members around the world. What did your father and your mother do as professions? My father is still a lawyer. My mom is an intensive care pediatric doctor. My dad works out of San Mateo. My mom works out of Oakland Children's Hospital. She, in fact, was one of the early women to really start getting engaged in the medical profession, especially in South Africa, where she grew up, where not a lot of women went to become professionals in medicine. So I had instilled for me from a very young age that women can and should do everything, that our interventions are important, that we are valuable as professionals, and that in particular, coming from the background that I have, that it's important to choose a space where you can be of service. And so that led me to, I think, very much want to be of service. And I am an academic. I love teaching. I love the research. But I also really want to make sure that my intellectual contributions are intellectual contributions that can be of service, that have import, that have ethical value. 
Did your mother grow up in South Africa during the apartheid or did she come to the United States at what period of her life? Yeah, she grew up during apartheid. She has a very interesting experience as a Jewish person in South Africa during apartheid. Just to give a very brief history lesson, many Jews emigrated to South Africa after the Second World War. And in fact, in the early years after that immigration, in the tight period between the end of the Second World War and the beginning of the official institutionalized apartheid system, Jews were really neither Black nor white. They were in this kind of indeterminate intermediate space. And in fact, they occupied that space until the apartheid government classified them in 1947 as officially white. And so there's a really long and very interesting history of Jews in South Africa. Sometimes I tell people that my mom grew up in South Africa as a Jewish South African, and they said, we had no idea that there were Jews in South Africa. And indeed, in fact, there's a large, thriving, very diverse Jewish community there, which is where she grew up. And she came to the United States in her 20s. She, I think, did not want to live under apartheid for those who lived under apartheid, for many people, especially socially justice-minded people, it was a very difficult time. But she also, I think, didn't want to martyr herself to the cause. And she made the decision to leave apartheid South Africa. She had done her medical training in South Africa and came to the United States to train further in a residency at Oakland Children's Hospital. She was in the Bay Area, and that is how she met my dad. And they fell in love, and she got a fellowship to Harvard to specialize there, went out to Boston. And my dad went out to Boston, realized that they wanted to get married. She dropped out of the program. <laughs> so my mom, I like to say, is a dropout and came back to Oakland and decided to go into pediatrics instead of her original specialty at, at Boston. And they've lived in the Bay Area ever since. What an amazing story. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have a sister and a brother. All of us are deeply invested in social justice and I think uh, want to carry over our grandparents and our parents' experience. My brother is a lawyer. He is in New York. He also has started a number of different nonprofits, including the African Middle Eastern Leadership Project, which works with people, typically refugees from African and Middle Eastern countries, to cultivate leadership and cultivate democratic principles. He is also currently involved, and I, I want to put some emphasis on this because if your listeners are interested, I think it's doing very important work right now with an organization called United Hatsala. United Hatsala provides medical aid independent of race, ethnicity, political background to people in need of medical care. And right now they're working on the ground in Ukraine. My sister has a background and experience in social justice in Oakland and the San Francisco Bay Area. She has worked for many years and actually just stepped down a couple of months ago as the executive director of an organization called Miracle Messages. It is an organization that provides aid and assistance and helps the homeless population and people experiencing homelessness in the Bay Area and many other metropolitan cities reconnect with their loved ones, provides resources to them. I think we need to do a whole show just in your family. My goodness. <laughs> so let's talk about your early years as a child, because you're surrounded in this amazing cocoon of knowledge and wealth of information that was unlike any other childhood I've, I've heard. So I mean, what kind of sparked your attention? I would say that I was a very shy kid. I was very introverted. And I loved imagining things. And so Literature was a portal into not only my own imagination, how to turn those scribbles on pages into imaginary worlds, fictional worlds that don't actually exist, that we actually have to recreate in the absence of any sensory content in our minds. I loved reading Dr. Seuss. I loved reading Nancy Drew. But 
when I was about eight or nine years old, my dad gave me The Old Man the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. And I fell in love with Hemingway at the age of eight or nine. And I've continued to love literature, both high and low art ever since. I think that some literary critics make distinctions between high art and low art and art that is good and that is credible as art and that art that is not that is entertainment. I love it all. <laughs> I think it's all wonderful and deeply important to cultivating the imagination. And I've read all of the Dr. Seuss and Nancy Drew and the Fabulous Five and Babysitter's Club and Hemingway and Gogol and Philip Roth and everything in between. What was it about Old Man in the Sea that sparked your attention? It's around 100 pages, which is a more manageable, more feasible book to read as a child. I also think the interaction between the human world and the non-human world has always been very fascinating for me, both in terms of the non-human animal world and, of course, the non-human digital world. Sometimes I like to say that I will sit down to work and have my lap dog on one side and my laptop on the other side, and I like to think about the symbiosis between those things. But I would say that I've always been interested in the relationship between humans and non-humans and how we cultivate or think ourselves into the being of other bodies. And certainly, I think that that is what Hemingway reaches, I think, the the brink of in The Old Man and the Sea. Yeah. And so how did that world that you're living in then transform into going on to UC Davis and studying literature? Is that correct? Yeah, I think that of the things that I could have been, literature was one that came to me very intuitively. Coming from a Jewish tradition, there's a saying that because Jews have historically been in exile or because Jews have historically not had a homeland and lived around the world, it's said that the Jewish home is in the text that Jews come together around a shared textuality. And so for me, I grew up around text and it's very much I think an intuitive part of who I am to explore and to imagine through the written word. But I also, one of the reasons that I went and became a literary scholar is because people kept telling me that I was good at it. And I think that this highlights something very important, which is that we maneuver toward the things that people tell us that we're good at, that we feel agile around. I say this in a particular importance because I think that it highlights not only the outcome of me becoming a literary scholar, but all of the other things that I didn't become. For example, you asked what I was like as a kid. I love video games. I had a Game Boy. I had Sega Genesis. I deeply wanted a Nintendo. I played all sorts of computer games. My older male cousins were computer video game freaks, and I wanted to be cool like them. And so I loved video games. I played a lot of them. And then when I turned about 11 or 12, I wanted to socialize with other girls. And Video games weren't meant for girls, and video games were never marketed toward girls. Narratively, video games aligned themselves with things that were traditionally more male interests. And this critical break from computing led me to become more agile with things like literature or the humanities or thinking about empathy but less agile in terms of engagement with technological devices. And what that meant was when I went to college, I was told how great I was in my English classes. And I went to my first coding class and I looked around and most people didn't look like me. And then everybody else was pretty agile at it. And I was not. And I said, gosh, I'm, I'm not so good at this. And I'm really good at this other thing. People keep telling me that I'm good at this other thing. And I just don't feel like I'm good enough or as good as everybody else in this other thing. So I went into the humanities and not into computer science and the rest is history, right? But why do I say this? I say this because these decisions about whether or not you should go into something happen very early and they happen around socially conditioned circumstances. And 
we ask the question sometimes, or at least I do in the context of ethics and technology, why is it that so many men go on to become computer scientists? And it has to do with how we build up agility and what we're told we're good at at a very young age. And I think that institutionally in academia, we have some work to do in terms of being more inclusive and not assuming agility from the get-go, as I think some computer science classes oftentimes do. But I also think it's really important to think, how do you tell a child to be flexible with not only what they're good at, but who they want to be, even if it's not you know, the thing that they think that they're good at. I also want people listening to know that you can become things and people that are not intuitive to you and to question why that intuition is there in the first place and why the friction or the lack of intuition is there in the other place. It may not just be your skill set. It may be something beneath that. So I mean, after Davis, you decided to go to Cape Town and numerous trips prior to that, or did you just uproot yourself and decide you're going to move there for a bit? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. I had, as an English major at UC Davis, the desire to go to study abroad. And I was an English major. I was in love with the English language. I wanted to go study abroad in the place where the English language had originated. So, of course, where is that? Well, it's England. And so I told everybody that I was going to go study abroad in London or in Oxford, Cambridge or something like that. I didn't sign up for classes. I didn't sign up for housing. And I missed the deadline. <laughs> I missed the deadline for the application. And so I went into the study abroad office and they said, well, there's some study abroad programs in the Southern Hemisphere that are still open. And so I decided that I wanted to go back to South Africa. Now, I had not been back to South Africa ever since the end of apartheid. And I had some family there. And this was the age before we were all connected through our devices and through social media platforms. So actually, my family in Northern California had completely lost contact with the family in South Africa. And I reconnected with that family. And moreover, I reconnected my mom back with the family that she had left behind and had been disconnected from for over a decade. And the connection was family. The connection was tradition. The connection was her own South African heritage and her own South African roots. The connection was materially to the place I brought her back. She came back to South Africa, a place that she hadn't been for 15 years. And the connection, I think, was deeply emotional as well. And I discovered a part of myself and a part of my family that I had never really encountered as an adult. I came back from South Africa. My next job from there was the director of the New England Holocaust Memorial, which I directed for a couple of years in Boston. And what I discovered there as well was that there was a question about narrative. How do we remember? How do we tell the story? What happens when the survivors start to die out and can no longer tell their stories? How does story then change as those of us who inherit that kind of memory mediate it through the forms of art? that have been our primitive imprinture in that history. And I increasingly became interested in how narrative worked and the role of stories in actually intervening into how we think and changing how we think. So that was you know, one of the directives that led me to go into graduate school as a narrative scholar. So you, in a previous conversation, you shared you know, that your intellectual ideas around tech are tethered to human rights and that you feel the idea of value and value is such an important word, had shifted from moral to utopianism to terrain of financial growth. Can you tell me a little bit more? How did you actually come to this realization? Was there like a moment or something that you saw that just said, wow? So my, my dissertation, my doctoral work, and my expertise up until about 2016 had really focused on human rights. 
And what I discovered, as many people discovered, I think around 2016 in the wake of the election of Donald Trump, is that we really couldn't talk about human rights or social justice without talking about technological innovation and technological culture and the impact that the industry was having on both human rights violations and also critical questions about human interactions at the intersection of human rights could be mobilized. So for example, when we're talking about human rights in the 21st century, we're talking about questions of whether our democracy is becoming algocracy or rule by algorithm. We're talking about questions of whether or not a social media company may have engineered and amplified a genocide in Myanmar. We are talking about questions of free speech on online platforms. All of those are human rights issues, and tech is right at the center of it. And in the wake of the election of Donald Trump, many of us encountered and had to come face to face with the fact that you know Facebook had potentially swerved the election in an incredibly significant way toward Donald Trump. We had to reckon with deep fakes and the idea that we may be living because of our technological innovations in a post-truth, post-fact environment. And we had to, at least I was hoping in 2016 that tech leaders, many of whom had been revered under the Obama administration and by American culture, broadly speaking, as kind of heroes and saviors and people who were democratizing information and making people more capable of connecting to information and to one another. We were hoping that these leaders would stand up. And many of us were very dismayed to discover that they were not, in fact, going to stand up. So I actually started to cultivate a movement and help to create a social justice movement in 2017 called Tech Stands Up to urge activists to pay attention to tech and to urge technologists to pay attention to social justice issues. And from there, I started to increasingly think, as I think many people were, about the role of tech and tech leadership and tech culture in the world that we were living in, the intersection of tech and human values. One of the things that I started to think about is that one thing that tech culture and technological innovation shares with human rights is the idea of building a better world. What both technologists in a very foundational way and what human rights thinkers in a very foundational way are interested in is how do we make life better? How do we create a better world? It's a kind of utopian thinking. The idea that we actually have inviolate rights, that we are endowed with those rights by a metaphorical creator, that human lives are human lives anywhere and everywhere, and that we actually are obligated toward other people with that. That's a utopian ideal. The idea of electrifying rural Texas, that is a utopian ideal. Both of these things are concerned with life as it could or should be. And so what I became very interested in in thinking about the relationship between human rights and technological innovation is that kind of vision. In fact, one of the things that became evident to me was that many of the great human rights thinkers were also some of the great technologists, from Thomas Jefferson to Benjamin Franklin to George Washington Carver to Albert Einstein to Al Gore. And so how do we think about that vision that mobilizes or is the engine for that vision of the world as it could or should be? And how do utopian visions of the world as it could or should be sometimes go terribly, horribly wrong? Now, that is to say that this is a technological utopianism. I'm not sure that that's the kind of world that we're living in in Silicon Valley at this point. Much of what I think was one 
against utopianism at the early days of Silicon Valley has now been taken over, I think, by opportunism and financial incentives and structures for what ideas get funded and what ideas get built and how those ideas get built and distributed that are not any longer tethered to a kind of moralism, but rather tethered to, as I said, a financial structure mobilizes people and incentivizes people in very different ways that don't have to do with ethics. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like Eric Daimler, an AI and robotics expert and former policy advisor for the Obama administration, who joined us to talk about how to regulate and develop AI and data infrastructure. There are other dangers in AI that I think deserve our attention. Here in October of 2021, what is taking in the popular imagination is the degree to which algorithms manipulate us. I think they they manipulate us in, in much the same way as the, the potato chip companies manipulate my body. Like they, they know more about my physiology than I do. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. Oftentimes I see in my career, just the pony show, I said God called to unicorn show where you're constantly seeing a carousel of different technology devices and you go to any trade show and look at any trade journal, it's the same thing. But I constantly ask the question is, do I need this, right? And you talk a lot about not can we build this, but should we build this? And do we need this? And I think technology can be advanced communication, it can advance businesses, but it also in the wrong hands, it can be like a, a lethal weapon. And so how do you teach people ethics. As a professor and as a human, how do we teach the younger generation? This needs to be part of the value structure. I mean, how do we educate? Oh, I love this question. And I'm still trying to figure out the answer to that myself. When I approach ethics with my students, I have to explain to them why they're getting ethics lessons in technology from a professor of English literature. And so what I say to them is that before we can build anything, we first have to imagine it. And so it matters how we imagine. What kind of imagination we have as a world is not absolute. It is not obvious. It's not inevitable. We actually come at that idea of a better world with a lot of passions and blind spots and biases. And so we want to interrogate the realm of the imagination. Science fiction gives us a portal into how we imagine a world as it could or should be, and how that vision of what a better world looks like oftentimes veers tragically into dystopia. Everything from the Tower of Babel, right? That's a story about technology. Here, we're going to create this incredible tower. We're going to imagine a world where human beings are all powerful and all seeing and all knowing. It doesn't turn out too well for the Tower of Babel. So I like to give that story. It's not often thought about as a technological story, but of course it is. The value that a better world is one that we are all seeing or all knowing in is not intuitive or inevitable as a value. It's a decision. And it's based on certain concepts about the idea of a good world that, again, are not obvious or intuitive, but something that we have decided. 
a world where all information is available to us and we have all access to it is not necessarily a better world. Certainly, that's a vision of utopia, but these are questions that I think we need to flesh out. We can look at this, I think, on another level, what people, I think, frequently associate a technological dystopian with George Orwell's 1984. And in 1984, the government comes up with a kind of utopian ideal, right? As, as chilling as we find it, it's a utopian ideal where citizens behave and everybody is conforming to the same kind of society. This is a kind of ideological purity that George Orwell was responding to in writing 1984, having just experienced communism under Stalin and Nazism under Hitler. And he said, you know, maybe the idea that everybody has to conform to a same kind of ideological adherence is not a good idea. Maybe state enforcement of that actually leads to a kind of dystopia. So the ideas of utopia are not intuitive and they may not play out exactly the way that we want them to play out. So I look to science fiction. I look to the imagination. I look to mythologies of how we understand the world as it could or should be to try and understand what values we're actually ascribing as values of the good and what values we're actually building toward. One of the things I keep thinking about is just the term ethical technology. If you were to look into not the Urban Dictionary, but the Oxford Dictionary, what would that definition be? Oh, I love this question. First of all, it's a question that a lot of people disagree with and that they have reasonable disagreements about. So I wanted to start off by saying my decision to call what I'm doing ethical technology is really oriented and anchored in an academic, intellectual, pedagogical context where I'm teaching the folks who may be the next generation of technologists. And I want to teach them to think empathetically, ethically, equitably about what they're going on to do. People who have reasonable reservations about the term, because one of the things that ethical technology suggests is that companies should have the choice to behave ethically, that we should not expect ethical action, but ethics is the question of what ought we to do or what should we do. When we talk about ethics, what we're not talking about is laws and regulation. I had a student about a year ago do a senior project on ethical technology programs in computer science departments across the United States. And she found hundreds of these programs that had been built in the past couple of years in ethical technology classes happening at universities and institutions across the United States. And she remarked to me, she said, you know, it's really funny because I find all of these ethics classes in computer science, I, I don't see that many ethics classes in like civil engineering. And I said, that's interesting. What's your theory? What do you think that that's about? And she said, I don't know. And I thought about it and I said, you know, in civil engineering, we actually have laws. We have a lot of regulations. If you're going to build a bridge, you actually need to get permits. And there are very strong laws telling you what you can and can't do. And those laws have been pretty well codified. If you are a doctor, there is a pretty strong ethics code that if you violate it, you get in trouble. Do we have those things in the context of our digital technologies? Not yet. And so where we are left is a system where tech companies in the digital space can choose to opt in and get lots of pats on the back for doing that because we don't have laws. And so the reasonable argument against the ethical technology movement is that there shouldn't be an ethical technology movement. There should be laws. So is there uh, chief ethical officers in the future? Or what type of titles do you think will 
transcend not just in Silicon Valley, but any technology-driven company, whether it's in the science and you know pharma space or automotive and uh, artificial intelligence. So are these new generation of professional titles as well as disciplines? There are chief ethical officers in the present. Salesforce in about 2017, 2018, hired its first chief ethics officer. I see these jobs increasingly cropping up. And so I'm really interested in how the tech world sees ethical actors, what kinds of roles, what kinds of interventions they're really looking for. What I've discovered is it's a bit amorphous. And there's actually not a lot of data about what skills these kinds of workers in this new workforce will need in order to succeed in these roles and what hiring managers are really looking for. So what we're really trying to do right now is we're trying to in some way qualify and also proactively define what these roles ought to do so that we don't have tech companies doing what is called ethics washing, which is essentially hiring people for public relations reasons, rather than actually engaging them in doing work. Now, here's the problem. If you have a company that has a leader who's really interested in growth, as a good CEO should do, and revenue which and responsibility to shareholders, which a good CEO should do, and you have hired an ethics team as part of your response to for example, the tech clash or public criticism, and your ethics team makes a recommendation and your growth team says, if we incorporate this recommendation, we will lose 1% profit. And your CEO chooses your growth team and prioritizes that 1% over your recommendation from your ethics team. It doesn't matter how many ethical actors you have. It does not matter how many people you hire. It's a matter of who the CEO is and what kind of priorities your company has built into it. And so what I teach ethics and technology, one of the things that I say to my students is that ethics is intentional. This is a deep, deep philosophy that goes back to Plato. Ethics has to be intentional. And it also has to be something that you intend from the beginning. You can't put an ethical prosthetic on your company. You actually have to build it in at the foundations. And it really has to be intentional. It has to be part of the design. And it also has to be something that the leadership will ultimately stand behind. So how do you take this knowledge from the classroom and then apply it into the boardroom in the C-suite? Are you actively doing that as well? Yeah. So I get asked to advise on a number of different ethics boards and companies. I frequently will talk to CEOs about the work that they're doing. They ask me what they can do to be ethical actors. And I love the question, but I say to them that I actually don't have a kind of prescription about what you need to do to be an ethical actor in the company. Instead, I propose to these CEOs eight questions that I think that they should ask if they want to be ethical actors. And what are these questions? Yeah, so question one, who will be using the product that you're creating and how? Question two, how well does this product translate across different cultures, communities, and subgroups? Question three, what cultural sensitivities must this product navigate? Question four, what harm could this product potentially cause? Question five, what historical wrongs does this product address? What kind of history are you engaging in when you create and distribute this product? Question six, which populations might be made vulnerable through the use and distribution and possible misuses of the product? I don't expect a tech company to know all of the potential ways in which its product could be used, but I think we can reasonably foresee some negative impact and we have a reasonable obligation to imagining and preventing 
that kind of harm. Question seven, what good does this product enable? And question eight, I think that this is the most exciting one and the trickiest one. How does this product engage and cohere to factual reality? And what I mean by that last question, because I think it's a little bit murky, is that if you have a product and you claim that your product does X, but it actually does Y, your product doesn't do X, it does Y. So it doesn't matter how much you believe that your product does X. That's a fiction if it actually does Y. So you want to get real clear on what your product actually does in the real world and not insist on living in a fiction. Are there any particular technologies that you use that you think, wow, you know, there must have been a little extra dose of ethics and <laughs> in, in bringing this into market. Is, is there anything that comes to mind that you're just like, you know what, this is actually a facilitator. It's okay. You know, it's, it's something that's going to bring you not just productivity, which so many things do, but just joy versus anguish and just dissatisfaction, which a lot of technology personally does for me. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, I would not say that technology is neutral. I don't think that it is. All technologies were created with a purpose. But of course, some of what the purpose becomes once a technology is created is dependent on how we use it. With that said, you know, I get a lot of joy out of connecting with people over my phone, right? A phone can be a distraction and it can be an attention suck, but it can also be a mode of connection and it can be a a life-saving mode of connection at times, both in terms of our mental and our physical health. I get really excited about clean tech and alternative food technologies. These are tremendously exciting to me to think about a world where non-human animals don't have to suffer, where we can live with a less cruel world and not have the kind of environmental impact that we have through our food production. Those are technologies that I get really excited about, as do climate check technologies broadly speaking as well. I am eagerly awaiting stem cell-based lab-grown meat. I've been a committed vegan, a vegetarian for most of my adult life, and I have serious concerns, both environmental and and in terms of the levels of cruelty around our food system. And so I, I think that those are incredibly important technologies. Pat Brown, who started Impossible Foods, was one of the leading climate scientists in the world, tenured professor at Stanford. And he asked the question, what is the most important and impactful thing he could do to stop climate destruction and environmental destruction? And he did the research and he came up with creating an alternative to meat. And we have Impossible Burger as a result. And this is an example for me of a technology that tells us that you can do good and do well. Pat Brown is not suffering as a capitalist because he chose a socially justice-oriented company to pursue. He's doing quite well, but he's also doing tremendous good. And the last thing I will say is that I, I think that we never fully know the outcome of the technologies that we create. I think the most significant example of this is the example of a man named Fritz Haber. Fritz Haber was a German-Jewish chemist who, in the years before World War I, became very famous for creating what is called the Haber-Bosch process. The Haber-Bosch process is a process that tried to solve the problem of food shortages across the world by creating incredibly nitrogen-rich soil. Haber-Bosch process has been responsible for agricultural revolutions that have fed 
deeply impoverished and starving populations, largely in the global South. Haberbosch won the Nobel Prize for this invention and as a proud German national, went to war on the side of the Germans in World War I. And he used the technology and the innovations from the Haber-Bosch process to cultivate what we now know as mustard gas, which was used in the troops in World War I to horrific results. The use of mustard gas as a chemical weapon led us to our current restriction on using chemical weapons. Bosch Haber, who had been considered a hero before the war, was ostracized by the international community post-war, but very much celebrated in Germany after that. He went back to his lab and started using the same technology to create a very powerful insecticide. He was creating that insecticide when the Nazi party took over. And as a celebrated German national, Haber was allowed to stay in his lab, but he was told that he had to fire all of his Jewish staff, something that he resisted. He left his laboratory and died stateless outside of Germany. But the Nazi party found this insecticide, took out the scent, created what we now familiarly know as Zyklon B, and used it in the gas chambers. So we never know where our innovation will go. We have to be very careful in thinking about the innovations that we create. This particular innovation, I think, gives us a mise en abîme, if you will, to think about the ways in which our technological innovations and our technological ideas travel. We're not responsible for where they travel in a global sense, but I think that we are responsible for thinking about all of the possible implications of our inventions and being protective and thoughtful and careful about how people may use them, not just in the ways that we have intended them to be used, but in ways that are much, much less intentional and potentially harmful. That was Deb Donick. I asked her how she might be able to translate the academic work she's doing around ethical technology into the tech industry workplace. And not surprisingly, she's already doing work in that area. She received a grant from the National Science Foundation, which she's using to study what our future tech workforce would look like if more ethically oriented jobs were created. And she's working with both tech critics and hiring managers to determine what those jobs might look like and what kinds of skills and background future workers would need to succeed in those roles. Deb certainly has a unique and fascinating perspective on where tech is now and where it's going, ethically speaking. But she refuses to identify as an expert on either technology or ethics. In fact, the one reason she says she wanted to start her own podcast was she wanted the opportunity to meet and talk to people who she believes are smarter than her. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.